Please, would you turn in your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 23 as we uh, pick up the text again. And uh, just a reminder to the folks upstairs, if one of the little ones decides they want to uh, practice uh, talking, there is that uh, little side nursing room there they can practice in there, okay? Matthew 23. Matthew 23. George Santayana, who was born in Spain and raised in the United States, is one of the most quoted philosophers of the 20th century. In 1905, he published a multi-volume work entitled The Life of Reason. And in that work appeared his most well-known and most quoted saying. Here it is. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, you may recognize that saying or something very similar to it because it's quoted often and also paraphrased, so you may, under, you may have heard it slightly different, but here it is again. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Imagine a panel discussion on TV that features expert guests. Uh, I'm talking about a TV no- news show where they have uh, supposed experts. And these guests are discussing what they say appears to be an emerging crisis. And the experts will point out that the events that are unfolding now are reminiscent of some past event. And what they will say is this. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, the reason that quote is so often invoked is because it seems so obviously true. We have seen so many tragic world events repeated over and over again. But as profound as this quote sounds, is it true? Is it true that those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it? For the most part, I think we would say yes. But I suggest it requires some important clarification. The reason I say that is because merely remembering the past is not enough to prevent its repetition. Here's an illustration. Let's imagine a man who is driving his car very fast down a narrow country road, when suddenly that road takes a sharp curve. But because he's driving too fast, he skids off the road and hits a tree. He is okay, but his car is destroyed. Now imagine the same man on the same road in a replacement car But again, he is driving much too fast. 
if he merely remembers that curve and the accident, will that remembrance be sufficient to keep him from skidding off the road again? The answer is no. Merely remembering the past is not enough. In addition to remembering the past, one must learn from the past. Am I right? You've got to learn from the past. And having learned the error of our ways, then implement a change in behavior. Isn't that the definition of repentance? Yeah. And so it would seem, it would be more accurate to say, those who do not repent are condemned to repeat the past. Which begs the question, why do we, as a human race, or even we as individuals, why do we not change our ways and repeat the same mistakes seemingly over and over again? Well, here's the answer. It's a problem that exists in every human heart. And you know what that problem is. Sin. It is sin. And because of our sin nature, our stubborn sin nature, we don't want to repent from our wicked ways. Now that, of course, has been the subject and the underlying theme in the section that we are completing today. In this section, Jesus has been pronouncing to the religious leaders, woe upon woe. In other words, he's been pronouncing his divine judgment on them. And why? They have refused to repent and believe. They have rejected their king. They have rejected their Messiah. And even worse, they've insisted that the other people, the public of Israel, reject him also. And what makes Israel's rejection of Jesus so tragically ironic is that Israel has demonstrated how true it is that mankind, because of its sin nature, is condemned. It is doomed to repeat the past over and over again. The focus of this passage has been Israel's long history. Listen, long history of Israel of killing the prophets over and over again. And now Israel will not only kill its greatest prophet, but God himself come in the flesh. Let's review our text from last week, and then we'll pick up where we left off for the second part of our study. Let's go, please, to Matthew 23, verse 29. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. These verses demonstrate that Israel's leaders did 
remember the past. They remembered the past. They knew history very well. They know that their ancestors killed the prophets, and that's why they were building tombs and building monuments to these past prophets. Why? To honor them. Oh, they knew the past. They remembered the past. And let's recall why God sent these prophets. Over the centuries, God sent his prophets carrying a similar message. It was a message of repentance. For example, we heard the prophecy from Isaiah who said, if my people will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. But the response that usually came from Israel was not to repent, but to kill the messenger. Now, to be fair, there were occasions when the people did repent. During times of great national crisis, such as when Israel was conquered by a foreign land and the people of Israel were taken away into captivity, the people did repent and they turned to God. But history shows that it was not a true repentance because their commitment was short-lived. As soon as the people were comfortable again, they returned to their wicked ways which caused God to send yet another prophet to call the people to repentance. And what did the people do? They killed the messenger. And so the leaders and people of Israel, remembering the wickedness of their forefathers, built monuments to honor them. And as they did, they made a conceited and delusional claim. Here's what they said. If we had lived in the days of our fathers. We would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. We would have done everything they said. We would have repented. It's no wonder that Jesus has repeatedly referred to the religious leaders as hypocrites. Because even as they honor the prophets, and deny they would have joined their forefathers in that killing, they are at this very moment plotting to kill Jesus. Based on their claim that they would not have done as their fathers did, Jesus will now draw a conclusion. We see that in verses 31 and 2. Jesus says, therefore, here's his conclusion, therefore, you are witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. As these religious leaders make the claim that they would not have done as their forefathers did, they're actually making a self-incriminating confession. They are saying that they are indeed children of murderers. And so Jesus' point is that they have inherited their father's murderous ways, and they will repeat the past and do just as their fathers did. And so Jesus looks at them, and I expect he looks at them with the most grievous of disappointments. 
He says to them at 32, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. He is in effect saying, finish what your forefathers started. As your ancestors killed the prophets, so will you. As we discussed last week, the imagery that Jesus is using when he's talking about a measure, fill up the measure, he's using the imagery of a measuring cup. Israel has been adding to this measuring cup sin upon sin so that the cup is very nearly full. And when that cup is filled and it pours over the top, God's wrath will also pour out. God's judgment is imminent. And why? Because history is now about to repeat itself in the worst possible way because they are about to kill the Messiah, the one, the prophets, the ones that they pretend to honor, the prophets, the one the prophets foretold, they are, are about to kill. That's why Jesus asks this rhetorical question. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? The answer to that question, of course, is they could not escape the condemnation of hell. No one can escape the condemnation of hell by their own efforts, by their own supposed goodness. That is why all people everywhere need a savior to deliver us from the flames of hell and deliver us into the eternal kingdom of Christ. And here was the, the only one who could save them from hell. And what were they about to do? Kill the messenger. Which makes the next three verses, the ones we're going to study today, all the more surprising. Surprising because Jesus will go on to explain that he will provide yet another opportunity for Israel to be saved. He will give Israel one last chance to be saved from the fires of hell. Let's go please to verse 34 as we pick up where we left off and we consider part two of this passage. Verse 34. Therefore, you see the conclusion word again there? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In just a few days, the religious leaders of Israel will deliver Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. And the people will shout out their agreement as they cry out to Pontius Pilate, crucify him. And we might think, that's it. End of story for Israel. They've crucified their Messiah. That's it. But there will be a final opportunity for Israel to escape the flames. 
Because after he is crucified, Jesus has made arrangements for his life-saving gospel to go forth. Jesus says, I am sending you prophets, wise men, and, and scribes, that is teachers. These three titles are actually Jewish terms that were used in the first century. But Jesus reappropriates these terms and gives them Christian meaning. Jesus is referring now to Christian prophets, Christian wise men, and Christian teachers. The meaning of these three terms is debated among scholars, but I will give you what I think are the most likely meaning of these three terms. The first term, prophets, refers to Christ's chosen apostles, such as Peter, John, and Paul. They were selected by Christ to serve as his messengers. Commissioned by Christ, they passed on to us his divine teaching. I suggest that the remaining two terms refer to Christ's followers, who after the days of the apostles would continue to proclaim the good news. And these followers of Christ who carry the good news into the world continue to do so today. These two terms, wise men and teachers, are closely related. These two terms refer to those who continue the work of Christ. And what is that work? Jesus told us what it is when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all the things I have taught you. In regard to the second term, wise men, that's not a term we typically use in the church because, as I said, it originally has its origin in Judaism. But I think we will recognize what it's referring to. It's, again, people who are called to teach the, the truth of Jesus Christ. But why wise men? Well, what we need to understand is this is referring to those who are wise not in their own eyes, but look to the wisdom of God. And so a wise man is he who teaches God's word and applies it to himself and asks others to do the same. That is a wise man. So therefore, all of these three terms refer to those who have one common goal. It is to call others, call upon others to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in the short term, Jesus will send out his apostles, and they will plead with their countrymen to confess their sin and their responsibility in killing Christ. And we have an account of just how this happened. The apostles began this life-saving ministry in the days immediately following when Christ returned to the Father's right hand. Jesus was crucified. He resurrected, and then he ascended to the Father's right hand. And on the day of Pentecost, according to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, while the apostles and other disciples were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. Peter then went into the streets to preach to the people of Jerusalem. 
And what he did is that he showed how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophets. And he also showed them or reminded them of all the events, of all that Jesus said and did and saw and heard, saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. And he proved to them that Jesus is the Christ. Peter concluded his sermon with these words. This is from Acts 2, verse 36. Peter, therefore, let all people be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Christ. And what was the response? The next verse says this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is at this point that Peter warned his listeners to make a crucial choice. The text continues like this. With many other words, Peter warned them, and he pleaded with them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, meaning you believe and be saved because this corrupt generation will not believe and they will be condemned. But in God's mercy, a remnant of Israel would be saved if they repented and believed. And at verse 41, we were given this report. Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here's the bottom line. After Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, the gospel would be preached. And as a result, some in Israel would be saved. But sadly, the vast majority in Israel would, con would continue to stubbornly reject Jesus. Therefore, Jesus gives this prophecy at verse 34. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Jesus has already been pursued from town to town as the scribes and the uh, Pharisees have pursued Jesus, dogging him at every step, challenging him. Now, in a matter of days, Jesus will be whipped. He's going to be crucified. And so Jesus is saying here that his followers, who will continue his ministry to teach the gospel, will receive the same treatment. Jesus has already forewarned his disciples about this. He's told his followers, you should expect mistreatment and violence. You will be persecuted, he told them. This prophecy, however, is spoken to the religious leaders of Israel and to those who will do the bidding of those religious leaders. 
Jesus says it is they. In fact, it says it is you who will attack my followers. Look, he says some of you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. In this verse, it appears that Jesus means to distinguish between the Jewish and the Roman methods of execution. That would explain why Jesus says you will kill and crucify. Kill, referring to the Jewish treatment, and uh, crucify, referring to the Roman treatment of Christians. Although capital punishment was supposed to be delivered only by the Roman authorities, there were occasions when the Jews killed their enemies without Roman approval. For example, the first, the first Christian killed for his faith was Stephen. He was killed by a Jewish mob who hurled stones at him until he was dead. However, Rome's preferred method for killing Christians was crucifixion. And this was the method used for killing people such as Peter. Here, then, is where we stand at this point in the text. Even after the religious leaders kill the Messiah with the support of the people, he will give them a final opportunity to repent. This call for repentance will come from his disciples. While a few will repent, the vast majority in Israel will not only refuse to repent, they will kill Jesus' messengers. This causes Jesus to reveal the penalty for this extraordinary evil. Look please at verse 35. That on you may come. He's, he's just predicted you're going to kill and crucify the people who I send to you. Verse 35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. In this verse, Jesus returns to the idea of Israel filling up the measuring cup of their father's guilt. Allow me to review the argument that has brought Jesus to this statement. In effect, we can hear Jesus saying something like this. Here's a, here's a, a summary, a capsulization. Jesus is saying, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you are, you're hypocrites. You claim you would not have killed the prophets like your ancestors did, and yet you are about to kill the Christ. And when the Christ gives you one last chance to repent by sending you his messengers to plead with you to repent, that you may have forgiveness and eternal life, what do you do? You kill them also. Therefore, not only will you be held responsible for the blood that you spill in this generation, meaning the blood of people like Stephen, 
whom you stoned to death, Peter, whom you crucified along with the Romans. But you will be held responsible for all the righteous blood that has been spilled throughout history. That's why Jesus says, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus makes reference to two persons, Abel and Zechariah. An uninformed preacher might suggest to you that this represents all of God's messengers from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. The problem with that kind of statement is that while both the Hebrew and the Greek languages do have letters that correspond to our letter Z, in neither of those languages is Z at the end of the alphabet. Now, as an example, let's consider the Greek alphabet. The first letter of the Greek alphabet is the, the letter alpha, which corresponds to our letter A. But what is the last letter in the Greek alphabet? It is the letter omega. That is why scripture calls Jesus the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. Now, oddly enough, it appears that this reference, although it is not from A to Z, the reference to Abel to Zechariah is designated, is designed to make that point a span from beginning to end. Abel's killing is the first murder recorded in the Old Testament. And Zechariah likely represents the last murder recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we cannot be absolutely sure of the identity of this Zechariah. There are some difficulties. But the most likely candidate is a Zechariah who was a son of the high priest. And this Zechariah was murdered in the temple courtyard. Although this view has some difficulties, the argument for this Zechariah is that the reference to his murder, the reference to his murder, occurs in the Old Testament book we know as Second Chronicles. The reason that is important is because in the Hebrew Bible, right, the Hebrew Bible only has the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible, which is referred to as the Tanakh, their books are arranged in the Old Testament uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, their books are arranged such that the last book in their Bible is the book of Chronicles. And so, these two murders would represent the biblical sweep of history from beginning to end as recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures. While we can't be absolutely sure of the reference to Zechariah, there's absolutely no doubt about who Abel refers to. And so we will presume that the reason Abel is referenced can also be applied to Zechariah and everyone in between. Abel 
was the first martyr, meaning he was the first one killed for his faith. As we well know, he was killed by Cain, his own brother. Jesus was killed by his brothers. Abel was killed by his own brother Cain in an act of premeditated murder. When Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices to God, Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's, however, was not. Cain was a farmer, and so he brought the produce of his fields to sacrifice. Abel was a shepherd, and so he brought the young of his flocks to be sacrificed. While it may appear that the reason God favored one sacrifice over another is because they brought different kinds of offerings, but that was not the problem. The problem was not a matter of what they brought, but how they brought it. You see, the issue was a matter of the heart. It is always a matter of the heart. When righteous Abel brought his sacrifice, he put God first. When Cain brought his sacrifice, who did Cain put first? Cain. It's always a matter of the heart. And so Abel was, in effect, the first of God's many messengers. Abel demonstrated to Cain the importance of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Cain was angry when his sacrifice was not accepted. And God gave Cain an opportunity to repent. God actually came to Cain and he spoke to Cain. He warned him. He said, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. And what did Cain do? Did he repent and follow his brother's example of putting God first? No. He killed the messenger. He killed Abel. And so it was. From the very beginning, from the days of Cain and Abel to the days of Zechariah to the coming of Christ, the vast majority of Israel, not all of Israel, there was a small remnant, but the vast majority of Israel not only rejected the way of righteousness, but killed those who would show them the way. And so Jesus says to the religious leaders and to all who would follow them, on you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth. I think we will agree that is a frightening verdict. To have all the shed blood of history laid on your shoulders. They will be held responsible not only for the murders they commit as a nation, but for the murders that were committed by their ancestors as a nation. But wait, as we heard earlier, when we heard a small part of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, not every person in Israel rejected Christ. Thousands did believe and they were saved. But as a nation, meaning on a broad scale, 
It is a story of stubborn rejection and violence. And so as Jesus sends to Israel prophets, wise men, and teachers, there are two results. Some will be saved, but that would represent just a sliver, just a mere fraction of Israel. But for the vast majority of Israel who lived during this generation and were given one last measure of grace, one final call of repentance, this rejection would bring upon them even greater guilt. As Christians, what, am I about, what, what I am about to say is going to be difficult for us to hear. And it is that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings two very different results. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of good news. It is great news, in fact, because whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Don't you agree? That's great news. That is good news. But this is what's so difficult for us as Christians to hear. For those who reject the gospel, every time they hear that good news and they continue to reject it, it has the terrible effect of heaping further and further guilt upon them. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 5. And this is a warning to every person of every generation who will continually reject Christ after, even after hearing about him over and over again. Romans 2.5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Jesus has a final word. And it is an unmistakable word of judgment. Verse 36. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Up to this point, Jesus has been targeting the scribes and Pharisees. He's been talking to the religious leaders of Israel. But now, in one sentence, he's made a frightening expansion because he's broadening his statement to include this generation. Jesus is now prophetically warning that judgment is coming upon all of Israel who lived in the generation contemporaneous with Christ. Here's why. They stubbornly persist in following their blind guides rather than following Christ. When Jesus refers to this generation, he means those who were there, who were present to see him, to hear him personally. This generation had available to them an unparalleled opportunity that far exceeded any previous generation of Israel. They had for them the law and the prophets. God's holy scripture, they had that. And those, the law and the scripture pointed to the coming of Christ. These, this generation, they were present to personally hear the teaching of Christ with their own ears. You remember, by their own admission, the crowds declared with amazement, 
This one teaches with authority and not like the scribes. They were witness to countless miracles, which, of course, they saw with their own eyes. And among the many and wide-ranging miracles that they saw, they also saw Jesus heal the blind. This miraculous power had never been seen before in the history of the world, according to the scriptures. And the prophets foretold this would be a sure sign that the Messiah had arrived. And yet, with all the evidence foretold by the prophets, remember, these are the same prophets that they're building tombs and monuments to because they want to honor them. All those prophets foretold the coming of the Christ, and yet they rejected the ultimate prophet, the one the prophets pointed to, the one who taught with authority, who healed the blind, who came with the greatest of prophecies, who said, I will show you the way to have eternal life. Follow me. And what did they do? They killed the messenger. The people joined with the leaders outside of Pontius Pilate's house and they said, crucify him. And so Jesus says, judgment will come upon this generation. In the next passage, which God willing we will examine next week, Jesus will begin to reveal the judgment that is coming. This generation meaning the generation that lived in Jesus' day, would see the complete and utter destruction of Jerusalem. The Romans would come and burn the city. It would put its inhabitants to the sword. But as horrible as that would be, that judgment would be not nearly as horrible as the judgment that awaited them after their physical lives were ended because then they would face the judgment of God. I mean the eternal judgment of God. Jesus had said to them earlier, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? They could not, unless they would do two things, repent and believe. Although these words were given to Israel, these Words ought to be a lesson to our own time and to our own nation. Never has a nation been more privileged than ours. And I don't mean, I don't mean materially or financially. I mean spiritually. We are a privileged nation. Our nation has been blessed with such spiritual opportunity that in some respects surpasses even that of first century Israel. Did you know that 85% of American homes have at least one Bible in their houses? And how many of those Bibles go unread? There is barely a street in the United States that does not have a church on it. And how many of those churches have empty pews. The gospel is preached on TV. It's preached on the radio. It's preached over the internet. 
Christ's gospel continues to be proclaimed by his wise men and his teachers. And yet, I would suggest that only a mere fraction of our nation, just a sliver, have actually put their faith in Christ and Christ alone. As our nation is presented over and over with the gospel of Christ, and yet our nation rejects Jesus over and over, how can it be denied that our nation is not storing up God's wrath? Because those who reject Christ are, in a sense, killing him all over again. How can it be denied that our nation is storing up God's wrath? As Christians, the level of rejection that we see around us can be discouraging. And as Jesus has warned those of us who will proclaim his name, there is danger in proclaiming the name of Jesus. But it is our job to persevere despite the danger, despite the, 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 the rejection that we feel, the discouragement that we feel. Our job is to persevere. Our job is to push through, to proclaim the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we don't want to see come to our nation what came upon Israel, which is judgment. We don't want to see that adage fulfilled that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Let's pray. Lord, pray, please help prevent us from wagging our heads and thinking, oh, those terrible people out there. We're so good in here. Lord, our our mission is to proclaim the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially in these, uh, coming, this coming week, it's going to be a week of darkness as people celebrate death. Lord, as we walk around and we, we see people with tombstones on their lawns, we wonder how can they think that as a decoration, oh, a celebration of death, when we want to celebrate life, how many times will they reject the gospel? Lord, make us messengers of your grace and of your forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray, amen.